call is now being recorded. A brief introduction. My name is Demel Dukes. Um, I'm currently serving a uh, life without the possibility of parole sentence for a uh, felony murder conviction in 2001, wherein I was uh, convicted of aiding and abetting an armed robbery. Uh, during that armed robbery, a uh, one Hani uh, Zabib was uh, subsequently murdered. Um, as a result of that, I was given a sentence. The uh, actual shooter was a juvenile lifer at the time and has been sent, uh, since subsequently resentenced to 28 years in prison, whereas I, am uh, at the time, was 22. I still have the life without the possibility of parole sentence. I was uh, found not guilty of felony firearm, meaning that I was not armed during the uh, robbery. The theory was, and what happened was, took money from the register and divided it up amongst my uh, co-conspirators and co-defendants. Since that time, I've um, been incarcerated, man, 20 years. Um, I have uh, started self-help classes, um, been a part of the National Lifers Organization uh, in, uh, in DOC, Michigan Department of Corrections. Uh, I've maintained uh, constant uh, employment, have reached out through community outreach with various uh, groups, Pure Heart Foundation, which is a foundation that deals with uh, children of incarcerated uh, parents, uh, we deal with um, uh, a Rikers Island writing program wherein a uh, class that we found at Compassion and Accountability, we, we write to uh, women and uh, uh, younger people that are in the criminal justice system with words of encouragement. We do that anonymously and help them uh, cope with things that they have to go through. And pretty much I'm all about prison reform. In that work, I have come uh, to know certain things from experience and from reading uh, the statistics and uh, just dealing with lifers and dealing with incarceration, period. Uh, so that's pretty much where I stand now, and I have a whole host of topics and things that I would like to talk about that can uh, be proven in uh, any amount of time and some of my perspectives and my critiques of how I think that it can go on. Uh, but before we do begin with the Q&A or anything like that in the dialogue, I also want to express that I'm not the only one. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of men in here that have, in my humble opinion, uh, a lot of brilliance. Uh, to take a word out of our brother Brian Stevenson's book, many of us are more than the worst thing that we've ever done. And if given a chance and an opportunity, uh, given an opportunity of parole or anything of that nature, uh, I think that we would, quote-unquote, knock it out of the park, not the hearing itself, but life and moving forward. Yeah, I think that's incredibly inspiring. And uh, how active you've been while incarcerated is uh it's really amazing. It sounds like you're really contributing to the greater community within the prison and outside, and uh, we'd love to hear it, and that's why we're so excited to have you on. Yeah, and I appreciate you guys. I also want to, you know, take the time, not to catch you up, but I really want to take the time to express the uh, gratitude of being able to reach out and speak with people. I have a personal philosophy that free people can free people. I think that uh, the misconception that, you know, so-called lifers or those that convicted of murder are, are in fact just that, and that we don't have anything to contribute, that we're, you know, the most dangerous, you should be afraid of us, and we don't have any intelligence. We are here for a reason. I, I want to bust up that notion, and I really want to begin the work of redemption now, uh, what do you see the role of community in influencing legislation and quote-unquote tough-on-crime policies? Um, the community in which uh, most of these harms and these, uh, these violent crimes take place, um, they're not that environment, and I'm, not, and I'm making a, a generalized statement, uh, but the greater majority of those citizens in that area are not that involved in the legislative process. And what I mean by that is um, when it comes time to draft bills and be tough on crime, a lot of that stuff happens in those state capitals, and it happens from communities outside of where the epicenter of those crimes take place. 
happened in the early for a fact there was a man that came in here by the name of Joe Hadman, who was uh, a state representative on the Prisoners Appropriation Committee, and I asked him in a, in a gymnasium for about maybe 200 plus people, you know, can you walk through us through uh, walk us through the process by which people who don't live in those communities make these laws that basically directly affect these communities. And he said that before he got into legislating, he was, uh, in fact, a private contractor, you know what I'm saying? Um, I think he had a, a private business building um, homes and things of that nature. And he said a lot of his colleagues are conservative. He was a Republican. He said a lot of his conservative Republican colleagues and some of the Democratic uh, constituents uh, were pretty much under the impression of what media portrayed and what they heard in the news and maybe true crime stories. So what will happen is this vicious cycle of a crime will happen in, uh, say, an inner city, and obviously, um, you know, this harms that city. And that's not to say that the persons that are in that city don't want some form of justice, but if you're only giving them the option of prison, you're not giving them the full breadth of what justice could mean. And what happens is the legislators take that to mean that, you know, those citizens want to be tougher on crime. Um, there's a statistic that shows that in Michigan specifically that the uh, increase of prison population in the length of state, there was no correlation between that and high crime rates. In fact, we happen to know empirically that high crime rates is directly tied to employment or the lack thereof and in many respects, education. So if you have people working, if they are involved in some form of schooling, then what you have is a person who's in a classroom or at a job for eight hours out of the day. They're not committing crimes. But when you draw them out and you have those resources taken away, uh, what you have is, uh, like my grandmother would say, idle hands is the devil's workshop. And I think what the uh, legislators did in an attempt to uh, quell that they were heavy-handed in their uh, legislating, and they were incentivized by the federal government to uh, uh, build these prisons and then make sure that the laws uh, ensure that they stay here. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, and I think that when people talk about the, the revolving door that uh, Michelle Alexander mentioned in her book, The New Jim Crow, you strip away the resources of a generation before of men that are incarcerated, it leads to the next generation um, lacking resources for education and That's job right. employment, and I, it exacerbates that issue for the coming generations. And it's just, once that improves, I think I think the rest of the pieces fall into place once there's resources and economic stimulus within a community. Yeah, another interesting point from that same book. Uh, you have, during the 1980s and 1990s, the, the spending on uh, crime harm reduction didn't change, but it was just reallocated towards incarceration Absolutely. And, and prison building. At the same time, education was slashed, mental health services slashed. Absolutely. Know, all the services Absolutely. that provide healing and hope of reconciliation in a community were kind of dismantled. If, if you if you were able to pull up any newsreels from that time, let's say let's pick a year, 1988 through 1998. And if you were to look at a newsreel about the Senate floor or the, the House floor in, in, in Washington, D.C., the sentiment from the legislators at that time were more punitive because there was a fear of crack and there was a fear of uh, particularly black men uh, being these crazed super predators, young boys and, uh, uh, you know, adult crimes do adult time. And, and there was a, uh, a punitive uh, sentiment amongst those people because in, in many respects some of the uh the people that were living in those communities you know they went to 
uh, their local congresspersons to change the law, but they, they didn't know in the long run what this would do. And it's ironic to me that they have a statistic talking about these broken homes, wherein they're saying that if you had a two-parent home, if you had stable, this, that, and everything, that perhaps these crimes would be committed. But at the same time, you could look and see where the policies that criminalize and begin to uh, cast aspersions on people from these, in these inner cities, it made it difficult to even have a quote-unquote nuclear family. You know what I mean? And it became systemic to the point where you can really pinpoint, like I said, if you pick 1988 to uh, 1998 or from 1998 to 2008, if you look and look at and, and listen to um, the, uh, the tone and look at what the legislators did at that time, you can see that it was directly tied to this um, punish and, 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 and throw away the key. But on, uh, yeah. in an ironic twist, uh, these same very things uh, was now used to say, hey, perhaps we got it wrong. And it's very, very interesting to see, especially being on the inside looking out. Yeah, it, it's incredibly interesting to see that, you know, um, just in the in the history of, you know, kind of criminal justice get tough on crime rhetoric, it was, yes. it was originally, you know, a conservative talking point to kind of challenge the impressive gains of the civil rights era in the 1960s. Yes. And, and then, yeah. um, you know, by the 90s with President Clinton and, I mean, even, you know, Senator Biden at the time, right. it became uh, it became kind of a uh, an issue that was bipartisan. Really quick, because I kind of want to you know, get in here real quick on, on what's happening inside of the prisons now. What happened inside the prisons during that time, you also had the resources that were taken out. The purpose was like, I'm not going to pay my taxpayer dollars to send some convicted so-and-so to college. So what you had was a lot of warehousing. And when you have, it's the same uh, situation in society. When you don't have programming, when you don't have something to do, what you have is mischief. And it seemed to be a concerted effort to say, okay, not only are we locking you up and throwing away the key, but we're going to keep you there to just basically turn your mind into mush. And under those conditions, it took certain uh, persons' willpower to fight against that. And if you have, you have one minute. Remaining. If you have family resources, if you have your own means, then you can buy books, you can study, and you can take it on your own initiative to do the work that we're doing. And I want to highlight and, and commend those of us, not to, you know, break my arm, pat myself on the back, but at the same time, it is not promoted in here to do the work that we're doing. This is, this is self-initiated, and there's a lot of men and women, I would imagine, that are interested in doing this kind of work. But what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to get back in the phone line, and I'm going to call you guys back, and I would definitely want to finish this conversation to have a series of them, and I enjoy what you guys are doing. I'm very grateful and appreciative of it. For a background, these calls are limited to 15 minutes. As you can see, this leads to choppy conversations and a strained connection between those within prison and those outside. What follows is the rest of our conversation when we were able to reconnect later that afternoon. This call is now being recorded. Okay. Okay, so, uh, yes, yeah, so we finished our last call talking about uh, a community and communities and the impact on community of legislation. So right. I'd love to just... I'd love to ask you, what do you think would be the best way for uh, communities to get involved in legislation? or uh, Like, how do you see that changing and progressing over time? Okay, I think one of the uh, – it, it, it's, you know, it's going to sound so simple, but educating the public. I think with the, the advent of these uh, latest events in the way of um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and all of these uh, atrocities that are taking place in American cities, I think there has become an interest – and um, the kind of work that we are endeavoring to do, but also changing the narrative and controlling our local politics. 
the local and state politics uh, have a greater impact on the day-to-day lives than the federal laws in many respects. So I think that if we were to educate the public, if we were to have, like, what they used to have with Schoolhouse Rock, you know, I mean, it was something yeah. so simple, but if you think about it, man, those things were very, very instrumental. I was looking at uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, did a, uh, uh, I think it was at Harvard Law or something on C-SPAN some time ago, where he was talking about a statistic like one out of every three uh, adult Americans can't name all three branches of government. So your civics uh, and your legislative um, process is, 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 is missed on a large portion of the people who are affected by these laws. So I think that the one of the things that sounds so simple, but education, if we can educate people on how the legislative process works, then I think that we'll give them some stake in the game outside of just, you know, like them up door with a key. I, I mean, you mentioned school, Schoolhouse Rock. I mean, that's right. like a foundational kind of experience right. for me as a child, you know, watching those mm-hmm. in, in my, like, second grade, third grade uh, social studies class. Right. Uh, that really kind of got my mind, like, had my mind wrapped around our system of government and how it works. Um, right. Now, do you think, obviously, investment in education is all, mm-hmm. always going to be beneficial, I, mm-hmm. I at least in my opinion? Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think that that kind of, the education you're talking about is meant, you know, in the classroom, or do you think, you know, well, kind of... I think, um, take a page... Media, I think I think social media. I think um, oftentimes, man, in my humble opinion, um, we in, in in this country, uh, we want to throw money. Uh, when you say invest, I, I don't look at it just from a, a term of, of economics or, or or paper money or some type of form of funding. And I don't think, and I'm not assuming that you meant that, but most times when you hear investment, you think uh, uh, money. I think investment can also mean time. Uh, utilizing what is available to us. Once we begin to make it, quote, unquote, cool to learn, once we make it cool to be involved, which a lot of young people, uh, such as you guys and throughout uh, uh, this country, what they're doing now is they are educating themselves. And I think that we could just add on to that. I hear a lot of people of my age and a little older talking about how do we get the youth involved. I think the youth are involved. I think what's happening is that they're not being heard, and it might not look uh the way that we would want it to look in the way of organization and perhaps maybe a little bit of the crassness and, you know, oftentimes, unfortunately, some of the violence. But I think that on the grassroots level, people are educating themselves and the investment needs to be uh, more so in, in, in personal time, things that what we're doing. If we could, you know, through our, uh, I'll give you an example, my daughter has like 12,000 TikTok followers and she's dancing and uh you know, dyeing her dog's hair and stuff like that. And I'm asking her, well, sweetheart, could you at least uh, throw something about uh, prison reform in there? She's like, Dad, that's boring. But if we could somehow make that cool again, we would not have to use the money and the resources of classrooms, especially since we have the social distance and shelter in place. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I totally agree. And I think, I think it starts with changing culture. And I know in the past few months it's been at the forefront of social media with all the protests and the Black Lives Matter movements and uh, yeah. you know, all these horrific cases you see on the TV that – I know justice isn't always served. The fact that it's becoming so popular in the media and talked about, I think that's a great step in the right direction because I think people, people, young people acknowledging it breaks the cycle of lack of interest in the topic and lack of knowledge in the topic leading to nobody getting involved in legislative changes. And I think, uh, I think we're finally starting to see the ball even just begin to roll and, uh, hopefully we can get the ball rolling a little better. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, so for example, last summer, you know, we we were in New York City. Um, the you know the protests were were raging. Right. People were angry right. out in the streets. Yeah. And one one of the main ways I stayed connected was through social media. That's right. And you know there were a lot of educational resources shared around. Um, you know that was where I was finding most of my information about you know 
where where the protests uh, to go to yes. and yes. What, what kind of uh, public actions are people yes. taking. That is, you know, something that does need to develop and uh, I think Absolutely. it starts with young people to be yes. passionate. From the inside looking out real quick to that point, it was to the chagrin um, uh, to the uh, establishment and the um, the uh, uh, media outlets. They didn't like that. They didn't like that you guys were coordinating without them. You know what I mean? So they, they could not yeah. track where you guys would be. They couldn't track who was the leadership because there was no leadership. There was a, a, a unified consciousness. And I think that this always, always disrupts the establishment and Big Brother, if you will. So I, I, if we could educate using the media platform, the social media platforms that we have on a grassroots level, I think that this would speed up the process exponentially, and what we would do is we would cover so much ground, and it would, it would educate and make those who would be uh, uh, fighters in the struggle uh, that more, much more equipped with what they need to make change. I totally agree, and I'd love to juxtapose against your uh, your childhood. When you were growing up, what what do you think your main source of, uh, I guess, education about social justice and uh, law enforcement was? Now, if there was ironic, law? ironically, it was rap music. It was rap I mean, music. It, 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 I have to be very, very honest. I, I remember um, when Tupac, I'm, 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 like I said, 42 years old, so, you know, Snoop Dogg, Tupac, uh, Ice Cube, these were very, very prolific. NWA, NWA, uh, 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 my time, and we found out um, what was going on in Atlanta through music. We found out what was going on in Houston, in New York, in LA. Uh, the things that you listen to, Dr. Dre's uh, chronic album, and I know this sounds so uh, taboo or whatnot, but they they were actually precursors to what was going to happen and to what was happening because mainstream media and conservative America and those that probably had their heads somewhere else uh, were looking past because of the, the, the classness of rap music. But this is how I was educated when I was 15, 16 years old. I, I know yeah. uh, kind of similar talking about, uh, like, I know NWS has some fuck the police and uh, yeah. during the times of the Rodney King riots and stuff like that, it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition against today and the – I guess the widely publicized police abuse that's going on and how it's being spread yeah. across social media versus in that day was across rap yeah. music, like you just said. Yeah. It's super interesting. I mean, I think it. I think it even still continues to this day. I mean, you know, See, to come now, now, now if, if I could jump in real quick, what's, what's yeah. disheartening for me is that the artists today are not as passionate and not as vocal as they used to be back then because of the commercialization of the music. It's all about party and opulence and excess. Now, I'm not hating on them because I still like rap music. I grew up on it, and I'm a, a you know, in my blood, if you will. But what I'm saying is that the artists of yesteryear, it was their duty to talk about if the George Floyd would have took place in uh, 1994, 1995, every uh, a prominent rapper would have had a song about that, would have had a video about it or something. And I'm not saying that the rappers aren't doing that now, but it would have been promoted and it would have been celebrated from a grassroots level or from the block or from the ghetto or from the street, whatever you want to call it. It would have came yeah. up from there because the fans would have demanded it. I think yeah. one guy doing that today, um, you know, is, is Kendrick Lamar. I mean, every... Yep. Every yep. album he's done so far, I mean, he's yep. been, you know, To Pimp a Butterfly, yep. I think, is my, yep. you know, one of the most formative al albums for yep. me, you know, I was Absolutely. just heading off Absolutely. the top when it came out, and it really kind of yeah. opened my eyes, you know, all the discussions, um, yeah. you know, regarding Absolutely. incarceration and, um, you know, traps and um, tribulations of, you know, people that are trying to, you know, better themselves and just uh, the surrounding, you know, economic anxieties and, um you know, difficulties of life um, in, in 
historically oppressed communities, I think, yes, is um, yes, really profound. And I think that is truly also an important um, way to get, you know, get through to people. I think um, I, right. I kind of That's do right. understand, you know, these this recent generation of rap artists are not necessarily uh, focused on um, no, because it's just not as popular. I think it's, I think it's, it goes back to what we were saying in terms of how you know what we um, uh, get people more involved in the legislative process. I think once we make it quote unquote cool, you know, once you know when we're seeing the, the, the words that they're using now, uh, once it catches a wave and you ride that wave of being enlightened, um, it, it really uh, spreads. And I think that you know that's what has to happen. Yeah, and you, and you see the old school reporters uh, like telling guys like LeBron to shut up and dribble. But I think people that have the have the voices in the public, like LeBron and other athletes and some pop culture uh, yeah. icons, starting to speak up about George Floyd and the recent. I think that's incredible, and I think that needs to get done and to engage Absolutely. younger generations to spread that on social media. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, speaking to that point, there, I think with that, what we're in my humble opinion, what we're witnessing. You have one minute remaining. And I make this point very, very briefly. With the shut up and dribble, it's really a situation like, listen, I want to be entertained. I don't want to be reminded of the ugliness of America. And that's just not the way that this country is, has been. Or historically, if you have a platform, you use it. And that, they know this. And I think that's just a, a, a tool um, or a, a mindset that just is more divisive. You can't fix what you won't face. And unfortunately, 2020 uh, was like, they say 2020 is a perfect vision. Well, 2020 was a perfect vision on all of the ills and some of the wrongs that this country has, but it also highlighted some of the things that's promising and some of the uh, areas in which we can go into. Thank you for using GTL. And that was the first of a number of conversations we've had with Demel Dukes calling in from the Chippewa Correctional Facility located in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we enjoyed speaking with him. We have a lot more to come, not only from DeMel, but a whole host of Americans currently and formerly incarcerated. Please stay tuned. Thanks.